Welcome to the Alternative Design Podcast, where we empower creatives to rethink space and how it's designed. I'm your host, Kaylin Reed, a Metro Detroiter, a former interior designer turned brand ambassador, and I'm inspired by the forward-thinking concepts found in the margins of our design community. Join us as we go deeper than the mainstream conversations buzzing around the industry and present an alternative way to think about how we can design for a better human experience. Have you ever been to Disney? For roughly four minutes on average, you're immersed into a thrilling ride experience that brings you into the narrative. Some of the rides like Soren and Epcot pump safari smells into the room and mists you with water as you glide over elephants in 3D. Disney has been perfecting experiential design for some time, but what value does that kind of experience bring to the office environment, retail stores, and even schools? Today, we look at a meditation chamber, a museum of ice cream, and a sensory cocoon to shed light on the intersection of technology and architecture, and how both can be utilized to engage the physical senses and create a deeper emotional connection to the built environment. But the challenge now is how can we appeal to the senses in collectively shared spaces when some are more biologically safe than others right now? This is episode four, Swimming in Sprinkles. Just for a moment, imagine you're in your office, bad day, whatever. You have you you want to step away, and at the corner of your office, there is a dark, discreet door, kind of down a hallway that you maybe don't go down all the time. So you kind of get up, you walk down to this discreet door, you push the door open, and inside it's just dark and quiet. And as your eyes adjust down to the low light levels, you kind of reach out to see if there's a light switch around and the wall is like soft, squishy felt. It's dark. You kind of feel around and then you see a little glowing keypad and it has a couple of little selections on it. And maybe it says sequence one, sequence two, sequence three. And you're like, well, I'll go with sequence two. So you click on that, close the door behind you. And then the felt absorbs all the sound. So your footsteps, all the sound, the kind of ambient noise of the office kind of fall away. The ground is carpeted. You can take your shoes off if you want. And so you feel like the soft ground on the floor. You feel the soft walls. And you see around the corner of this kind of dark chamber, the glowing light from a room that's beyond it. And you step from this tight, small, compressed, dark space into this room that's starting to glow with these much brighter kind of glowing colors. And then a subtle music, a subtle sound starts to emanate from the walls. It's ambient, it's abstract, it's slow. And you step into this room and then the ceiling kind of leaps out above you into some sort of completely unexpected space. It is as colors wash across the ceiling and the light slowly walks the colors along the ceiling around the edges of the wall. You also see a little banquette next to you. So you get to sit down in the banquette 
and lean back and kind of settle back into this dark felt space that you've been walking along the edge of the wall and then look up at the ceiling and then you start to see that the colors are slowly changing and the music is slowly pulling you through this and you time starts to fall away and all of the concerns that you have out in the rest of your workspace are far far away and as your body starts to settle into this really comfortable grounded seat your eyes and your mind are completely ungrounded and they're chasing this scaleless ceiling above you you can't tell how big it is you can't tell how far away it is or what's happening next or what's what's above you and you just watch the colors start to wash over it very slowly because time at this point does move more slowly and then you watch that and that that's what starts to pull you into this place of respite and calm and that gives you a moment to relax and recenter yourself and after some period of time the light slowly the music slowly fades back out always these ambient sounds that are calming and the lights really fade back down into a low light a low white color at which point you can get back up and walk back out and have a much nicer day afterwards that was lane rick a co-founder of the office of things what you just experienced was basically an audio guided tour of one of the meditation chambers the office of things has been designing for the likes of smaller corporations you know like google and youtube it might have felt a little bit like a program from your Headspace app, or it might have just given you some time to disconnect and let go of some stress. That is the leading concept behind the meditation chambers. There was an installation that we did in Toronto a couple years ago that was actually a, an immersive space that we installed, the goal of which was to use the architecture and augment it with like technology in order to help pull people mentally away from their physical space but it started getting us thinking about other ways that we could augment architecture with technology and i think part of that exploration is in accepting that we already do put technology everywhere in our buildings it just doesn't necessarily work and it doesn't necessarily improve our lives and it's definitely not necessarily beautiful so that was that was really something that for us was compelling from the outset is trying to find ways to make it actually an improvement to the experience rather than like an overwhelming part of the experience i think something with the first project that was so interesting was the the constraints this is Katie Stranix also a co-founder of the office of things we were given a hotel room that was fairly small, I don't know, less than 200 square feet. And that was where the installation was installed. So it, it's something where I think we were able to achieve the kind of immersive space and this, this way of disconnecting for just a couple moments um, within a really small space. Um, and so I think something with office space is everything is, is so precious and the ability to create this space that allows you to disconnect for a little bit within a very small footprint is something that is not only appealing, but also super interesting in terms of how you begin to approach that spatially. So before we continue hearing from Lane and Katie, let's talk for a moment about experiential, also referred to as immersive design. 
In Samsung's CES 2020 keynote, HS Kim, the president and CEO of Consumer Electronics, claimed that we're at the dawn of a new decade called the Age of Experience. Since the 1970s, we've been in what historians call the information age, where digitized knowledge was and still is very ubiquitous, and the development of new technologies was rampant. But now, in the experience age, value is being placed on meaningful experiences over material possessions. We no longer want to only listen or watch the story. We also want to be in the story itself. So the trick, then, is how the meditation chamber brings the user into the story so they feel like they can disconnect from their surroundings. The challenge, of course, is that time goes really quickly when we're at work because there's always things happening. Like, how do you force people to slow time down? You can put them in, like, a beautiful space. You can put someone in front of, like, a beautiful piece of art. And if they're very in tune with looking at art and, like, using that to slow time down for themselves, they can do it. But if they're not habituated to that, then like, how do you tell someone, stop, slow down? <laughs> and, and that's where the, the light and the sound like, are intentionally, painstakingly slow to the point that they don't really feel like they're moving. And this is something that we always do with these installations is after building the room, installing the lights, we actually, our colleague JT does the sound and sit in the room and write the lights and the sound on site and then watch it. It takes days because it takes a long time to do it. But like we have to sit and watch it and experience this time and like really dive into this because you, it can't be too slow so you're bored. It can't be too fast so you don't slow down. Mm-hmm. And that's where for us it's about the immersive, the immersive space and the architecture and the environment um, is that it can do a lot of the legwork for helping you feel like you're stepping into a different space. So let's take a moment to reflect. Did you notice that the music maybe helped you breathe a little deeper, maybe slow down a little bit? Imagine how even more powerful that would be if we could engage other senses as a part of the listening experience. Notice how the Office of Things considers more than just function and aesthetics when creating the meditation chambers. They're harnessing experiential design to address deeper psychological needs of the human experience, which right now is desperately needed. I don't know. I think there's a lot that will change about the way that you work because of this this year. I mean, for so many reasons and also going through a pandemic and people losing people they love and having to show up at work and, and also just, I mean, so many things that are happening politically and socially, like there's so many things that I think have affected people in bigger ways than, than in the past or in more obvious ways, maybe. I mean, that's something that actually we have been talking about a lot is what are the new needs in the office now that going to the office has new stressors like kind of attached to it? And then what are the new needs for your home? And how can you create an environment that helps you escape? Lane made an interesting statement earlier about putting someone in front of a piece of art and expecting them to know how to appreciate that and how hard it is that they've never done it. Really taking the time as designers to lead with empathy and design for someone who maybe has no context for the experience you're trying to create is so important to the process. One of the ways the Office of Things has solved for this is through the use of well-timed, well-planned transitions. What if you don't have a room, you have like a phone booth? 
how do you create, uh, Katie mentioned earlier, the transition space. How do you create that transition space that tells you to stop, drop everything behind you, like emotionally drop it, let your, let your guard down and step away. And how do you create that if all someone can allocate is the space that was taken up by the Xerox copier? And that's, I think that's a really interesting design challenge where you can always look back to technology. There are things that we do on our phone that prime us to expect other stuff. Like you open your phone, you expect to get an email or something. Could you open, could you use your phone to expect to meditate or to expect to step away? Or like, could you, and really always thinking about what you can eliminate from the experience and still get the same effects. I think it's about using the senses. If you're at home, you have taste. Maybe you have like meditation biscuits. I don't know. (laughs) I wouldn't be opposed to that. So what if your client or the stakeholder still just doesn't feel like they can accommodate space for something like this? I think that any company that is renting office space is going to come across is space that is freed up by technology kind of scaling down in size. So spaces that were allotted to printer rooms or server rooms or who knows, like storage closets, filing cabinets. There's so many things that were such a staple in office environments that are going away. So I think that just frees up a lot of square footage. I think there's square footage that needs to go to people and there's something that could go over to a space like this. So while the meditation chambers are meeting a deeper human need to rest, disconnect, and heal, the Office of Things is looking at other human needs and how they could incorporate those into their projects moving forward. I think having play be more part of our lives, non-productive but personally rewarding engagement with our surroundings. And there's always something about play that is about your surroundings, right? It's always about objects and spaces and things and people. And slightly about that escape from the very like transactional world that we spend so much time like pushing against and being jammed up into. And then instead having something that's on the face of it is exactly what it is. Speaking of play, I think this is a perfect moment to bring in Arik Lubkin, Senior Director of Architecture and Design at the Museum of Ice Cream. We're going to hear how they're offering up a uniquely sweet experience in Soho, New York, and now Singapore. You get out into the world of architecture and interior design, it's a very, very visual heavy industry. And so, you know, you start to look at ways that you can, you can bring the other senses into your experience. Certainly there are, there are ways that we've brought in smell and touch, particularly with materiality and that kind of thing. But something as key to our experience of the world is taste, getting to bring that into our experience of our physical environment right off the bat is uh, a pretty exciting thing. And outside of, I suppose, restaurants, you, you really don't have much of that. I think that we're all craving a little bit of a sweet experience right now in our lives. And so to me, the sensory aspects of the experience, that's the, that's the strength of it. And that's the craving right there. It's satisfying the craving for just a sweet, holistic experience. In 2020, consumers spent $861.12 billion online with U.S. merchants. 
It was the highest annual U.S. e-commerce growth in the last two decades. And while I'm an Amazon junkie as much as the next person, brick-and-mortar retail establishments have something special that the digital world frankly can't duplicate. The ability to meet the human dimension of shoppers, their senses. Studies show that shoppers spend more time in the store and are more likely to make purchases when all five senses are engaged. So everyone who comes to the museum gets an ice cream name. My ice cream name is Cookie Dough. And, you know, that's sort of the first step in saying, I'm somewhere else now. I'm, I'm going into a different, a sweeter reality, if you will. So you come through the experience with this ice cream name and without spoiling too much, essentially you're, you're going through a series of experiences. The very first one in New York is the Crosby Lounge where uh, first, very first thing you're offered a treat. And, and that's sort of part of the ethos of the museum is making sure that all of your senses are getting fulfilled all the time. And so as you go through and you go from our lounge to our New York subway, which is a museum of ice cream inspired take on the New York subway system to the piano room or the rainbow hallway, which uh, I know a lot of people saw recently um, featured on Nickelodeon um, to the sprinkle pool, which is of course the signature exhibit. Whoa. Did you get that? To the sprinkle pool, sprinkle pool. A pool full of sprinkles. Can you imagine what the sprinkles would feel like in between your fingers? Would it feel kind of like beach sand? Could you smell the sprinkles? Like maybe even some of the different flavors? This is kind of blowing my mind. Throughout the entire experience, just constantly getting all of your senses satisfied. When, when Mary Ellis had this vision uh, for the Museum of Ice Cream, <laughs> in the time I've worked for the company, I can tell you that she likes to take care of people through food. Mary Ellis is the founder and CEO at the Museum of Ice Cream. After launching the museum in 2016, it had a 200,000-person wait list just to get in. And since then, it served up treats to the likes of Katy Perry, Kim K, Gwyneth Paltrow, and even Queen Bee herself. One of the core goals of Museum of Ice Cream is connecting people. So they wanted to create a space where people could come together, have fun, um, be inspired, and to really, you know, embrace their inner kid, whether they are a kid or whether they're uh, an adult now, looking to sort of embrace the kid in all of us. I'm going to go back for just a second to the concept of the experience age we talked about earlier. Nikki Baird, the VP of Retail Innovation at Aptos, claimed in a recent Forbes article that the age of retail design is over, basically stating that the actual store's role in the retail enterprise is just going away. However, Several other sources say that while the traditional model of brick-and-mortar establishments might be going away, or at the very least shifting, the ones who are staying relevant and strong in the industry are the ones offering a unique store experience. We're talking immersive, Instagrammable retailtainment. Yeah, and I, I think the idea that the Instagrammable moment is a sort of new concept is kind of funny too, because, I mean, you look back at Frank Lloyd Wright, there is a perspective to his sketches of falling water. You look at, I mean, Hugh Ferris and the, the, his sketches that were specifically created to sell the idea of a skyscraper, <laughs> you know, and you're looking at this and it's the standing on the street, looking up kind of viewpoint. Every designer says, look at my thing this way. 
I think the harder part that we're trying to achieve as well is here's a moment for you. But if you don't want this moment and you're taking your own photo, how can we also say whatever 360 you're in, we're trying to, to convey the whole museum through that. Here's this framed opportunity, but it's not just that. So designers have essentially been creating the Instagrammable moment for some time now in how they present their concepts to stakeholders. Think 3D renderings that perfectly capture the design concept you're trying to sell to the client. But it's one thing to create a vignette or an accent wall that captures attention. It's another thing to have the entire space be the Instagram moment that builds an engaging experience from all angles. One of the questions I had for Arik was how much technology is being leveraged to actually achieve that? I would say that we are, we're definitely more architecture heavy. Um, we have uh, technological elements for sure. And, and I'd say that as far as a ratio, it's hard to say it might be, you know, 75% architectural and 25% technological. And I will say that as we move forward, that level is probably increasing, but we're trying to do it in a way where it's not obtrusive. I've seen a lot of, you know, both immersive experiences and standalone you know, sort of tech demonstrations where the fact that it's like screaming at you, this is technology and look at the cool tech. And there's absolutely a place for that. I think our approach to it is a little more subtle. Um, we don't want to beat you over the head with it and say, look at the cool technology that we're doing. It's more, hey, here's a really amazing experience you can have. And this might be supported by some really amazing technology that we're, we're not really going to show off. We're going to let the experience speak for itself. Something that surprised me about both the Meditation Chamber and the Museum of Ice Cream is that they aren't relying on high-tech solutions alone to do the legwork of guiding a user through the experiential space. Immersive design is most often related to augmentive technologies like augmented reality or virtual reality. We've been using the terms experiential and immersive interchangeably throughout the episode, but it's worth noting some of the benefits that traditionally immersive or technology-based solutions can offer, even in the architecture and design world. For example, immersive architecture is blowing up in the industry right now. I mean, what client wouldn't want to walk their proposed space in 3D using a VR headset before signing on the dotted line? Industries like healthcare are seeing a huge benefit in providing VR experiences to patients in order to help manage pain and provide physical treatment. So to experience it for myself... I borrowed the latest innovation in the virtual reality world, the Oculus headset. I have no idea what the rules are. Oh. <laughs> I failed the level! <laughs> Correct. It took a couple times to figure it out. <gasps> oh! I see the arrows now. I feel ridiculous. Okay. All right. This is me on the 10th try. Oh, I haven't failed the level yet. I kind of feel like Luke Skywalker. Oh, I don't. Okay. Yeah, I didn't. I don't know how I failed it, but I did way better than last time. So it took me a minute to get my bearings and to figure out how to play the game. But eventually I did figure it out and it was really, really fun. So a couple things I noticed. I was ridiculously engaged, like 1,000% felt like I was there in the moment, in the experience, but it didn't take very long for me to realize that I was the only person playing. And maybe I was more cognizant of that because I was trying to ensure my husband's safety from me punching him in the face, 
But what I really wanted was for him to play and experience the game with me. Arik shares a similar viewpoint. I think those experiences are take off. But right now, the idea of being in a VR bubble just by myself and, you know, even like the massively multiplayer kind of thing where you're on your own, but theoretically you're in a world full of people. I never really loved because it still feels like you're basically on your own there. There's the, there's like that distance. And I don't know, it, it, that sort of separation never really worked for me. So while VR holds a lot of potential to democratize immersive experiences for people because it provides the opportunity to enjoy something very similar to a built space, it lacks the ability, at least at the moment, to connect people in a meaningful way. And for the Museum of Ice Cream, that's a non-negotiable. Arik gave us the behind-the-scenes look at their design process and how the experiences are created for the guests. We're constantly ideating, right? We have a company ethos of anything is possible, which is both incredibly freeing and that sort of blank page problem, right? Where you're staring at a blank page and anything is possible, which means that, oh God, where do I start? (laughs) And, you know, we're lucky to have a very strong brand identity that is sort of a guiding star. We also have brand principles and guest experience principles where hospitality first, right? I mean, how do you design a space that never requires anyone to turn their back? Where when you come into a space, you can be fully enveloped in that space before you're thinking about the next one. So that is careful consideration of sight lines and um, framing of, of elements. If you're, you know, 36 inches tall, like my daughter, and you're running around, what's your experience of the space? And, you know, one of the things I'm really grateful for was being taught to think in section that uh, a section far more illustrates the like lived experience of a space. And, and so I start the design process in, in both plan from a more functional perspective and section from um, a, a more human perspective. And then we move into 3D so that we can move through and, uh, and sort of see the space from every angle. This episode is brought to you by Etcetera. There's more to life than work, and workspaces should reflect that. That's the philosophy behind Etcetera. We have an eclectic soul filled with swoon-worthy goods that run the gamut from offbeat and sassy to homey and cozy. Etcetera allows you to crush on evolving trends and update your space as quickly as the styles change. With a fashion-forward focus and commercial-quality collections, Etcetera gives customers access to the world's on-trend furniture with the dependability and reliability of Kimball International's high-quality standards. Quick, on-time, damage-free delivery is just one perk. On-trend, yes. Dope, yes. Take charge and make it happen. Yes and yes. Etcetera tackles any design challenge with SaaS, style, and smart solutions. We can even deliver direct to your doorstep. Boom. Go ahead, dream big. Etcetera has you covered. Go to lifeworketcetera.com to discover all things etc. So at this point, we've covered how important multi-sensory spaces are for work and retail environments. I wanted to explore one more space type that could benefit from experiential design, and it's one you may have already guessed. We talked to Adelia Schluz, the Director of Education Interiors at HKS, who comes with a truly unique perspective shaped by not only her design career, but her studies in behavioral psychology. 
So we talk about, you know, creating these makerspace environments, right? So combining the digital and the physical and providing students the ability to have a learning lab, right? Exposing learners to tools and the environment where they can, you know, be creative, they can tinker, they can test, they have the freedom to explore their own sensory world. So what you or I might grab physically a tool to tinker with, it might be very different than someone else. Children naturally they're playful and creative. And so reinforcing these characteristics, if we grant them the space to do that, I think alludes a little bit more to what you were saying with the emotional side of play, the emotional side of learning that kind of reinvigorates that cognition, right? And allowing the individual to express themselves within their learning environment. So I think that multidimensional setting is really important. So it's both the virtual and the physical. Studies show that when the brain is involved in emotional processing, it modulates memory consolidation. In other words, experiencing emotional content is better remembered than neutral content that doesn't elicit any emotion from you. This is fascinating to explore for adults, but obviously holds a major impact in how the learning environment should be designed for children as well. More specifically, for students with a wide range of learning aptitudes and abilities. Blaine Tech High is where we had a sensory hub. And what the impetus of that is, you know, it was a collaborative endeavor. And there was a higher population of students that had sensory challenges and really thinking about that and stepping back as a team. And so we developed a sensory well-being hub, but then there's also this sensory cocoon. And basically what that became was a micro environment that's a tunable environment that can cater to an individual's learning because not everybody has the same uh, levels of or want or needs from a sensory standpoint. So really what that was is to create this micro environment for one or two people to come into this cocoon. And there's a, a virtual imagery that you can select that goes with the sound and the lighting. And we know about circadian rhythm and, and what lighting and coloration does to our psyche and the way that we perceive the space around us. So that was a part of that project. So once again, letting the perfect blend of technology and architecture do the legwork to not only create an immersive experience, but to also build an environment that's more inclusive and equitable for all. Multisensory experiences bring more elements and features to a space that a variety of users could interact with. And just like our other guests, Adelia echoes the sentiment that technology, while definitely an enhancement, comes with particular challenges that you have to know about going in. Oftentimes it's budget constraints. So yes, it'd be great to have all these technologies, but then how do you understand that and utilize that and prioritize maybe? So maybe there's like these major opportunities that we have that can enhance the learning environment. I think we're probably seeing an influx in the need for the physical more so than considering the virtual continuum. For millions of students, the adjustment to a completely virtual learning setting has been far from easy. Studies are showing it's becoming increasingly more difficult to stay motivated and not fall behind academically. Some of the students who are having the most difficult time adapting to the virtual schoolroom are low-income and minority students, because the accessibility to learning remotely is limited, as are the appropriate technologies required. We're not talking about the latest Oculus VR headset. We're just talking about a computer. If you look broadly across the education market, every school, every community, every system is, is a bit different. Everything looks just a bit different. So 
you know, to be able to really listen, I think it's almost like it's a circumstantial opportunity to really listen and and look at, you know, what is the socioeconomic status of the students? There's a level of access to education, you know, virtual um, learning and opportunities are very different from student to student. So how can we really look at that with connecting with the kids in new ways? And it's really making virtual personal. So whether that's in the classroom and there's some sort of technological advancement, um, how can you make it more personal to that pedagogy, to that learning? What if we could reimagine experiential design to be a lot simpler? Earlier in the show, we raised the question of how many senses are actually required to redirect someone's interest and attention. What if instead of thinking about immersive spaces strictly as an inside experience, we could create an outside environment that actually accomplishes the same thing. Many industries are reimagining how they could reallocate space to accommodate for these outdoor spaces because the user perception of these spaces right now is safer than being indoors. So you talked about, you know, the built environment and what happens within it. Well, really, we would love to connect the indoor and outdoor, you know, connection. There's oodles of information. Again, nothing novel to us that biophilic design boosts your cognitive abilities and just makes you feel happy when you're part of nature. So how can we not only bring that and influence the textures and the inside environments, but how then can we do that outside? So we've done where you have the connections available outside to where it's like you're this interactive physical play, but then you can maybe roll something outside that's electronic that maybe can tie back into the classroom or there's just a multitude um, of ways to approach that. So the question becomes, how can we approach our education projects, both big and small, with a lens for identifying where some of these experiential moments could happen? We oftentimes talk about persona mapping. So utilizing that user experience. So you're basically taking several individuals that may be different and making a persona map as how someone would navigate and traverse through a space all the way from their home to their communities to the school, and then try to understand what are some of the challenges and opportunities to design in a manner that that really speaks to a, a broader persona, you know, looking at probabilities and really trying to understand how someone may go through a space. So then that creates these opportunities for us to say, okay, we may need to consider a space in between for respite for staff. For example, you mentioned earlier, we're seeing creating meditation rooms versus just a quiet room. It truly is a meditation room. And how do you then design that differently and use these safety cues, again, both physical and psychological in the built environment and how we can react to that appropriately. Ideas on safety definitely look a lot different than they did a year ago. And there's still a question mark on how exactly we'll be able to interact with these spaces more safely, especially the ones that require a collective sharing of the physical senses. Here's how our guests have responded during the pandemic and the thoughts they have on the future of experiential design. It has a huge impact on um, the architecture and the design of the exhibits because Now we've got to think too about, okay, the flow through beyond the old terms where it was more like making sure that the flow was smooth. Now it's making sure that the flow is smooth and safe and adjustable with every single exhibit that we do going through and saying, okay, let's look at the materiality of this. Let's look at the spacing here. Let's look at the area that we're providing for this experience. Is it the experience where a person or a small group that's together can do this 
safely and feel like they're still having that experience. And then when the idea is connecting people, but you have to keep people separated, you know, it's this very tricky dance that you have to do. Doing that while keeping people safely separated is an additional challenge. But I think that, again, comes down to the people and how the, the guides pull people in and let everybody feel included. I mean, I think having more flexible seating meets both changing occupancy needs, but also allows you to modify and change and adapt the most touch intensive part of rooms. Not many people are touching ceilings yet. We'll see how that changes. But for now, I think it's kind of thinking about the flexibility and the touch are both tied into a lot of the same parts of the room. I think there's going to be more of a uh, focus on spaces like this within the office space and more kind of square footage given over to spaces that are more about wellness in some way, whether it's an exterior space or a space for kind of uh, decompression or wellness in in some way. So I think that's a shift that I'm looking forward to. There's a resiliency and a durability that we take into consideration that has always been there, but I think it's heightened. What I would say too is when we talk about, you know, placing materiality or healthy materials in our buildings, there tends to be an overreaction to cleanability in a sense to where some materials are quickly, you know, the technology is we're trying to create these applications on the materials that are antimicrobial or, you know, things that could be worse for our health and wellness than cleaning it. And so there's that balance and that science behind all the materials that we think about in our built environments. So I think it's an opportunity to have the discussion with our end users and facilities and who would be maintaining the building and those materials. To summarize a quote by the artist and landscape designer Robert Irwin, the difference between an artist and an engineer is that while the engineer's road is perfectly straight and efficiently gets you from point A to point B, it leaves out the beauty of a slightly more curved road one that winds through a forest and shows a glimpse of the ocean. And while it's hard to put a qualitative value on the experiences on the winding road, they have the power to truly change us. So whether you're leading with technology or architecture to create these experiential designs, there's shockingly no one-size-fits-all answer for how you leverage either, as both have pros and cons. Some of the most forgotten spaces, like hallways and closets, you know, the more transient spaces, could be recruited to help transition the user into a better, more immersive experience. And though it will take work and some reimagining on how everyone can share the use of senses in the same space, the outcome will no doubt be safer, healthier, and more immersive than ever before. This podcast is brought to you by Kimball International. Thanks so much to Lane Rick, Katie Stranix, Arik Lubkin, and Adelia Schluz for chatting with us today. Also, thank you to Etcetera for being our show sponsor. For more content, check out our show notes and don't forget to follow us on Instagram at Alternative Design Podcast. Thanks for listening.